You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. On today's episode, Adam and I were joined by Nicole Harger. Nicole comes with over 12 years of Big Four experience and is now a member of our quality team with Adam. Today, we tackle the topic of contingent consideration arrangements, both from a buyer and seller perspective, and I'm excited for the day that I no longer have to say contingent consideration arrangements because it's pretty tough. You'll hear a lot of guidance reference throughout the episode because this is a topic with a lot of nuance and because these two know their stuff. We hope you enjoy the discussion and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Adam Olson. Hey, Adam, how are you? I'm doing great. Another day of talking accounting. Yeah. <laughs> I never actually address you, so I thought I'd give you a chance. Oh, I appreciate that. And you'll see that we are also joined by Nicole Harger, who works on Adam's team as Embark's National Quality Director. So she works with Adam all day, and now you're stuck on a podcast with him. Yeah. No place I'd rather be. (laughs) All right. Well, these are two very technically inclined minds. So we are in for a great conversation today. And we are talking about contingent consideration. So let's jump in. Start with the basics. What exactly is contingent consideration? Yeah. So from an accounting perspective, you know, contingent consideration, which you'll often hear people refer to as like an earnout payment or an earnout provision. Um, it really represents just an obligation that a buyer has to transfer additional assets, or sometimes it could even be equity interests um, to a seller at a future date based on a certain contingency or event occurring. Um, if that's met, then those payments will go forward. But from a deal perspective, you, you know, contingent consideration and earnouts are often viewed as more of kind of a mechanism to help close the deal. So a lot of times when negotiations are happening with deals, there's Kind of differing views between the buyer and the seller for what the business might be worth. And so one way to help kind of protect the buyer um, from paying too much um, and also giving the opportunity for the seller to prove their worth is to include some type of contingent consideration in the agreement that will be paid out, you know, subject to certain events or conditions occurring. So you're saying it's consideration contingent on a certain event. Yes. So the definition actually matches what it is, which doesn't yep. always happen. Holds up here. Yep. I love that. So what are some common types of contingent consideration arrangements that are used in practice? Yeah, um, I think most commonly what you'll see is a lot of like earnings driven metrics. So, you know, you achieve a certain sales target. A lot of times EBITDA is used as a measurement. Um, so they set certain targets of those measurements over a defined period of time. And so if those are met, then you know, the the related payment will be made. Um, But it doesn't always have to be based on earnings. Sometimes, depending on the type of business you're acquiring, there can be other provisions that'll allow for contingent payments to be made. Um, And these could be things like, you know, obtaining a certain product development. If you're buying like a life sciences pharma company, could maybe get in a certain patent on a drug. Um, You know, it could be, you know, if you're looking to close a deal that's in progress between the acquired company and that, you know, contract negotiation gets completed or if a a new customer comes on board or something like that, you know, there's other ways that they can craft contingent consideration provisions in the agreement. So are there any types of subsequent payments made to the seller that would not be considered a form of contingent consideration? Yeah. Yeah. So there can definitely be payments that are made by the seller in the future that don't qualify as contingent consideration. So 
some examples maybe to help illustrate that point. Um, so consideration that's held in escrow, or there could be payments that are related to working capital adjustments. Um, those wouldn't be considered contingent payments because they're not really based on any kind of future contingent event. Um, instead, those amounts are really payable based on what was already known at the acquisition date, and they're really just kind of getting trued up and settled. Mm-hmm. Um, another example could be, you know, a lot of times there's a conditional payment that may be made to a selling shareholder who's also going to retain their position as an employee of the acquired company. If that, you know, selling shareholder has to maintain employment in order to receive that um, contingent consideration payment, in other words, if they left, they would forfeit that payment, that would not also be considered contingent consideration. It's really viewed as compensatory payments, so like compensation for that employee. Mm -hmm. Um, And then lastly, there can also just be other obligations that are in the contract themselves that require um, a buyer to essentially make payments in the future that aren't contingent on a, on a future event. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing you saying is that it's not about the timing of the payment. It's about the timing of the event itself. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it's got to be, you know, conditioned on a future event or circumstance or something being met that triggers that payment. Okay. So maybe to add a little more clarity, let's give an example of future payments that would be considered contingent considerations with actual numbers. Yeah, sure. So if we kind of take that last one, like, so let's say you've got something in the agreement that's got a provision that basically states, you know, to acquire this company, you're going to pay $10 million on the acquisition date. In two years from the acquisition date, you're going to make an additional payment of, let's say $2 million. Because that $2 million is really not you know, conditioned on anything being met. It's basically just saying two years from now, you're going to have to give us another $2 million. It's really not considered contingent consideration. It's really just a deferred kind of payment for the, for the acquisition of that company. Um, and it's really just based on the passage of time and not really a condition, you know, in the future. So it wouldn't be contingent consideration. Um, a lot of times people think of this as really, it's, the seller is giving the buyer like a financing arrangement that they don't have to pay all of the purchase price on the acquisition date, but instead they can spread it out kind of over time. And so that additional payment that would be paid out is really just another form of seller financing. Awesome. Well, let's flip it over to Nicole. Nicole, can you give us some of the advantages of contingent consideration deals? Yeah. So um, earnouts actually have several advantages from the buyer's perspective. It allows them to pay part of the purchase price only if certain goals are met. Um, They also allow sellers to receive a higher transaction value when the business performs to their expectations. Um, Earnouts also motivate key employees to stay involved with the continued operations of the business. Um, And then in the case of a strategic buyer, it also allows the sellers to share in the benefits of transaction synergies. Okay, so in order to not be biased in our conversation, what about some disadvantages? Are there common issues that we might see in earnout arrangements? Yeah, so um, earnouts are really designed to prevent disagreements during the negotiation phase of a deal, specifically as it relates to the price. Mm-hmm. Um, but they often lead to post closing disputes down the road over the earnout itself. And in some instances, these disputes can result in litigation or arbitration, depending on the terms of the contract. So what are some typical reasons that give rise to post-close disputes? Yeah, so two of the more common reasons for a dispute uh, would be how the earnout 
itself is calculated. And then also if there are changes in business operations post-close that would relate to the earnout. So you're telling me that when millions of dollars are at stake, people don't just naturally agree and make peace? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So let's keep going with those reasons for post-close disputes. Let's start with the disagreement with how the earnout metric is calculated. What are some specific examples of how those disputes might arise. Yeah, so the first thing that comes to mind is anything that requires judgment, right? Mm -hmm. Um, More specifically, I think about reserves on the balance sheet. So there are some cases where a buyer may create new reserves or increase the value of pre-existing reserves. And um, in those situations, that would obviously impact earnings. There may even be some instances where a buyer could fail to unwind unnecessary reserves that are already on the balance sheet itself. Um, The next thing that comes to mind is just treatment of non-recurring one-time transactions, so specifically transaction expenses. Um, And then lastly, defining addbacks to the metric. So for example, are the addbacks related to expenses or losses? Um, Moving into disputes related to changes in operations of the post-close business, Uh, a first example would be just management of earnings through the changes in those operations. Um, Contract negotiations post-close, so uh, instances where potentially a contract is executed and revenue or expenses moves in or out of the earnout period. And then lastly, just a lack of marketing of the acquired business goods or services. So we kind of mentioned this earlier, but are these typically resolved through litigation, arbitration, or are there other common ways that these things get resolved? You know, so I think a lot of times there's definitely kind of provisions in most purchase agreements for what's the, how they will essentially handle any disputes. Um, if, you know, in a well-written agreement, most legal teams will include some language around that. So it'll definitely depend on that. Um, you know, the relationship obviously between the buyer and the seller, maybe kind of what is at dispute here, um, you know, when it's significant amounts of money that could be paid out and there's just disputes over that, you know, you're likely moving into more of like, you know, a litigious or some type of arbitration type arrangement to help settle that. Um, I think one thing to kind of keep in mind is that like, there can be a lot of costs that are incurred when you go kind of down that path. And so, um, there is a general kind of consensus, and I think the SEC staff weighed in on this um, in some comments about how you should handle like litigation costs um, that could come up from post-business combination disputes, particularly around um, things like a contingent consideration provision. And so normally those are going to be accounted for as just expenses in the post-combination period. Like there's a there's a very narrow view that if somehow you can make an an argument that the litigation is directly related to something, you know, associated with the purchase price or the consideration transferred with the purchase price, then it could potentially be part of the acquisition accounting, but usually it's an expense post combination. It sounds like maybe we want to avoid all of that. (laughs) We do. (laughs) Especially when legal fees can get so high. So what are some best practices for a company structuring a contingent consideration arrangement? in order to help maybe minimize some of these disputes that would come up. Yeah. So Nicole touched on a few of these, I think, in kind of just, you know, talking through examples of things you kind of be on the lookout for, but, you know, it's definitely important that you spend proper diligence, like structuring whatever contingent provision 
um, contingent consideration provision um, that you're going to have in your agreement because it really does help avoid you know, as much as it can these disputes down the road. And so one is like figuring out what is you know the actual basis for the earnout. So is it based on sales? Is it EBITDA, net income? Really having an understanding of what you're starting with and then what are the adjustments that are going to be made to that metric, if any. Um, you know, one thing to keep in mind too is, you know, sometimes people will argue that, you know, they'll use a sales metric because it's usually easier or maybe has less kind of ambiguity or judgment about making adjustments to it versus like an EBITDA metric. Um, so it's considered safer, but, you know, having a sales driven contingent consideration metric often doesn't really protect a buyer if that, you know, if the um, business has really poor performing margins because it's really just focusing on the top line revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but EBITDA is probably one of the more common ones. Um, a lot of times it will include a number of adjustments. Some of those adjustments are obviously discussed as part of the negotiation. So I think it's just, you know, wanting to make sure you understand specifically what are the permitted adjustments. They're, you know, sp- specifically defined. There's lack of, you know, just saying non-recurring expenses is, you know, kind of an ambiguous term, but maybe specifying what actually qualifies as a non-recurring expense as an example. You know, another thing is like, you know, don't often refer to things as like a one-time expense either, because that can be, you know, judgmental about what is really one time, what counts for that. So just just being really kind of diligent about what goes into those adjustments to that um, kind of baseline metric. Um, I think another thing to keep about is, you know, we we see this more and more, especially with COVID, is that a lot of contingent consideration provisions are multi-year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so making sure if you do have multi-year or multi-period um, provisions that the period is defined, it's understood whether or not any of the periods kind of work in tandem with each other, or are they, you know, viewed in isolation, um, just so there's no confusion for how, um, you know, calculation of whether that condition is met down the road um, when people are looking at whether the payment needs to be made. Um, And, you know, a lot of times people will say that a shorter kind of contingent consideration provision, you know, maybe just a single year, it's obviously less risky. Legal probably likes that a little better. Um, But a lot of times it doesn't always align kind of with the acquired business itself. And so, you know, a seller may really be pushing for a multi-year kind of contingent payout because they want to say, we are going to prove the worth of this business, but it may take a little more time. So it sounds like specificity, clarity, and then really understanding what you're going to be calculating is probably helpful for yep. people. Yeah. And then if there are any, like, you know, we, we mentioned if there are disputes, there are probably always going to be some little issues coming up or, um, you know, a lot of times when you're submitting that, you know, a certain contingent provision is met, there's some, maybe a calculation or there's some type of way to show how that was met. You know, like there's usually dispute resolution clauses in a lot of these agreements. So just making sure that there is kind of clear language for how, if there are issues when it comes time to evaluate whether this payment is required, that that's specified as well. So there's no kind of confusion on how this should be resolved. Sounds like good practice. All right. So let's move into the actual accounting for these arrangements. I'm sure there are complexities, but Let's just start off with kind of a high-level overview. How does a buyer account for contingent consideration in their purchase agreement? Yeah, so, you know, similar to other assets or liabilities that you, you know, would acquire or assume in a business combination, contingent consideration is also going to be fair valued on the acquisition date. The real complexities with contingent consideration um, is driven by the classification of it. 
Um, and before we get into how you classify contingent consideration, maybe just speaking more high level for how the accounting would work once you know the classification. So contingent consideration that is classified as equity, for example, is only fair valued on the acquisition date. Um, there's no need to, you know, subsequently remeasure any of that contingent consideration. You know, instead, when settlement of it occurs, it's going to all occur through equity. Um, on the other hand, if the contingent consideration is considered a liability, it is going to be remeasured every reporting period at fair value with those changes in value running through earnings. Um, and that'll occur until that consideration um, is settled. So that then begs the question, how would an acquirer determine if contingent consideration should be considered liability or equity? An easy way is if the, if the payment has to be made in cash, uh, which oftentimes it does, it's going to be required to be classified as a liability. Um, on the other hand, there are arrangements that we do see out there where um, either the arrangement itself requires or maybe the issuer, this, in this case, the buyer has the option to settle the arrangement in shares. Um, and that can you know, cause a little bit more complexity and require a lot more judgment and analysis. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that the, the business combination guidance, so ASC 805, it doesn't actually provide any specific guidance on how you determine the classification of contingent consideration, but really tells you to look to other areas of gap. Um, so most often when you do have an arrangement that could be settled in equity, um, it's going to require the buyer in this case to kind of follow the guidance in ASC 480, which is you know, distinguishing liabilities from equity. Um, as well as the derivative guidance in 815. I'm glad you defined what's in those because not everybody's an encyclopedia of ASC, all the codification. Like you are. Yeah. <laughs> he just did that from memory. He just knows. Can you provide some context for how those two 480 and 815 impact our conclusion? Yeah, so... Like I said, if the entity is going to be required to settle its contingent consideration provision, assuming it, the future condition is met and its own equity securities, then the guidance is in 480 and 815 is you know, most likely going to apply. Um, because in this case, really what you have here is you have like an equity link contingent consideration arrangement. Mm -hmm. So let's take a deep dive into each of those, starting with ASC 480. Um, how might this apply to cont a contingent consideration arrangement? I feel like I need to start saying earn out because I'm getting I, really tripped up on I, this. <laughs> I'm excited for the day that I don't have to say contingent consideration yeah, ever again. I was gonna say, there's a lot of alliteration happening in here. I don't know if it's good or bad. It's a good um, intro. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, no, that's a that's a good question. So 480, you know, we mentioned that's the you know, guidance that's out there when you're trying to distinguish whether certain financial instruments should be a liability or an equity. And really that guidance has um, kind of three different types of instruments that would be within its scope. Um, so as if the obligation of the issuer here, so in this case, the buyer um, involves a financial instrument that is either mandatorily redeemable, um, requires them to repurchase, you know, their shares by transferring, you know, assets or something else down the line, um, or issue a variable number of shares when you have a monetary value that is solely or predominantly either fixed or it's derived from something other than the underlying fair value of the <laughs> issuer shares, mm -hmm. um, or it moves inversely to the issuer shares. So of those three different types of potential financial instruments that could be in the scope of 480, you know, in practice, contingent consideration arrangements often 
you know, I guess if they were to be in the scope of 480, often fall into kind of that last um, bullet that I mentioned. And that's really where, you know, the buyer in this case or the acquirer has the obligation to deliver shares. And the value of that obligation is, you know, predominantly based on whether or not certain contingencies or target thresholds are met. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one way to determine whether that arrangement is actually in the scope of 480 is really looking at um, kind of what the arrangement's monetary value is predominantly based on. So oftentimes it's either going to be an exercise contingency, which, you know, that's when you've got a target that's like a revenue target or an EBITDA target, or it could, you know, be a share price. Um, If the monetary value is based on an exercise contingency, so some type of earnings target, then the arrangement generally is going to be a liability within the scope of 480. Um, On the other hand, if the monetary value is more predominantly based on a share price, then it's going to often fall outside the scope of 480. And so you'd have to look to other guidance. So if a contingent consideration arrangement is not a liability under ASC 480, does that then mean it's going to be classified as equity? No, not necessarily. So the 480 guidance really just tells you whether or not something should be a liability. It actually doesn't go to the other side and say it should be equity. So it's a little misleading, I think, when it says distinguishing between the two. (laughs) It only tells you it should be one, not the other. Um, So instead, what you have to do is you have to look to other applicable guidance. And so we've mentioned, you know, before that 815 is often kind of the next um, area of gap that you would look to to figure out whether or not the equity linked kind of contingent consideration arrangement more or less meets the definition of a derivative and would you know be within the scope of the derivative guidance or it meets the definition of a derivative but then it meets the scope exception for derivative accounting um, so that's an analysis that you'll have to go through in cases where it does meet the scope exception for derivative accounting under 815 you know then the contingent consideration arrangement would be equity classified Um, On the other hand, if it doesn't meet the scope exception and it is a derivative, then it's going to be a liability. A lot of derivatives words in there. Yeah, (laughs) which I feel like people get a little scared when they hear the word derivative. Yeah, oftentimes they do. So uh, Don't be intimidated. You guys are fine. (laughs) So is this classification a one-time assessment? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, no. I mean, technically the guidance is going to tell you that you know, each reporting period, especially when you've determined that something should be equity classified, um, you want to make sure that there haven't been any changes that would no longer allow you to meet the equity classification. And this is more so on when you're you're kind of evaluating that scope exception to derivative accounting, because there is um, there's specific criteria that have to be met to be considered indexed to an entity's own stock. And then in addition to that, there's a bunch of factors that have to be met to qualify for equity classification. So if things change that maybe you no longer meet all of those requirements, then you would need to you know, assess the, uh, the contingent consideration as something other than equity. Yeah, but at that point, they're a professional. They've done this. <laughs> it'll be easier the second time around. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Nicole, what happens if an agreement has multiple contingent consideration arrangements? Are they just viewed as one? I know this is your favorite answer. It depends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In certain cases, an arrangement may have more than one performance target for payout. Um, A reporting entity is required to determine the appropriate unit of account for evaluating classification of earnout arrangements. Um, This is because the guidance in ASE 480 or 815, um, when you apply it, classification differences could exist based on terms and conditions in the arrangement. 
Um, Determining whether a contingent consideration should be viewed as multiple units or a single unit of account is a matter of judgment, and um, it will not solely depend on how the arrangements are presented in legal agreements. Um, in order to be considered a single unit of account, um, each target may must be independent of other targets, and it must have its own discrete risk criteria. All right, so that's kind of Hetty, so what if we give some examples? Do you have any that you could give our listeners on some arrangements that might have multiple units of account? Yeah, so um, assume an earnout arrangement requires the buyer to pay seller 1,000 shares of buyer if EBITDA in year one after the acquisition exceeds $5 million. Um, and the buyer is also required to pay the seller 2,500 shares in year two after the acquisition if EBITDA exceeds $10 million. So in this example, uh, each payment target is based on its own discrete risk exposures. Uh, specifically, each payment is based on an independent reporting period, mm-hmm. and the outcome of the payment target does not impact the other. So in this arrangement, uh, it would be viewed as having two separate units of account. Okay, I see how the judgment comes in here a little bit. So on the other side, what about examples of when multiple provisions are viewed as just a single unit of account? Yeah, so assume um, the buyer is required to pay seller 1,000 shares of buyer if EBITDA in year one after the acquisition is greater than $5 million but less than $10 million. Um, and another performance target in that same agreement would be if the buyer has to pay seller 2,500 shares if EBITDA in year one is after the acquisition is greater than $10 million. So here um, the provisions do not involve separate payment triggers based on discrete risk exposure. So instead it's basically just an arrangement where buyer is required to deliver seller a variable number of shares um, that is determined based on an EBITDA metric. And um, in this situation, the arrangement in this case would be considered a single unit of account. Makes sense. I think those examples are really helpful. I wish we could whiteboard it out, but obviously it wouldn't work for podcasters. <laughs> um, what about, are there any arrangements where the acquirer may receive purchase consideration paid back to them based on certain parameters? And if so, how would that work? Yeah, so um, in some cases, a purchase agreement may have a clause where consideration paid is returned to the buyer. Um, In these cases, the acquirer would be required to fair value that contingent right Mm -hmm. and also reflect that value on their balance sheet as an asset. And similar to liability classified contingent consideration arrangements, it would also need to be um, revalued at each reporting period. Okay, so we mentioned earlier in our discussion that certain future payments may not represent contingent consideration, specifically payments to employees or the selling shareholders. Can you help us unpack what we should keep in mind in evaluating those types of payments? Yeah, so you're correct. All contingent consideration arrangements must be evaluated to determine whether they are considered compensatory. Um, In case in where that determination is made, the acquirer would not recognize the liability or equity on the acquisition date associated with the arrangement. Um, Instead, any payments made would be considered compensation expenses 
and those are accounted for based on other applicable gap. One thing to keep in mind here is if the earn-out arrangement is dependent on continuing employment, um, it's likely considered compensatory. And so, in other words, as I think as Adam touched on earlier, if they forfeit payment by leaving the company, it's compensation that is accounted for in the post-combination period. So what if the arrangement isn't tied to continuing employment? Could it still be considered compensatory and accounted for separate from the business combination? Yeah. So um, a transaction arranged primarily for the economic benefit of an acquirer is not deemed to be part of the consideration transferred for the acquiree, and it should be accounted for separate from the business combination. Um, reporting entities will need to consider you know, the reasons for the transaction, who initiated it, and the timing of it. Um, this is an area, again, where significant judgment is required. Uh, ASC 805 provides additional indicators to think about when you're evaluating this conclusion. Um, those include continued employment, the duration of continued employment, level of compensation, incremental payments to employees, number of shares owned, linkage of payments to valuations, and the formula for determining contingent payout. That was so nice of them to include a list. <laughs> Doesn't you, always happen. Uh-uh. They give examples, you, too. <laughs> Whoa. That's so rare. Um, could you give some insight on how each of those factors that they gave us in that beautiful list might be evaluated? Yeah, so um, as Adam alluded to, the FAST, we did provide some examples when indicating when listing some of these factors to consider. Um, if we want to think about just the level of compensation related to the payment. So if it's reasonable compared to other key employees, um, the payments are actually consideration transferred. Um, thinking about like the formula for determining the contingent consideration, if it's based on a percentage of earnings, uh, the related payments are considered compensation. However, if they're based on more of a valuation formula, such as the multiple of earnings, the payments are consideration transferred. So we spent quite a bit of time talking about how the acquirer would account for the contingent consideration. So let's switch gears over to the seller. How would the seller recognize and account for an arrangement from their perspective? Yep. So the basis for recognition and measurement of contingent consideration and deconsolidation uh, is not addressed in ASC 805. So um, instead, I think Adam alluded to this earlier too, a company needs to evaluate whether your, the arrangement qualifies as a derivative under ASC 815. So again, if the arrangement meets the definition of a derivative and it does not qualify for a scope exception, um, it's recorded at fair value at the acquisition date and then subsequently adjusted to fair value at each reporting period. Um, going into kind of what is the scope exception. So contingent consideration arrangements that qualify for the scope exception when the underlying is revenue, net income, um, cash flows from op operations or EBITDA, um, and therefore would not be accounted for under ASC 815. Um, in that case, a reporting entity would make a policy election to account for the arrangement either at fair value or as a contingent gain recognized when reliable. Um, if the fair value is elected, the reporting entity must also determine subsequent accounting for that election. So um, again, they would have to make an additional election um, to account for the arrangement either under the fair value option or as an interest-bearing financial instrument. Okay. 
<laughs> well, how does the contingent consideration guidance change if the transaction is not determined to be a business combination, but is considered an asset acquisition, which we have an episode on. <laughs> we do. A little plug there for you. <laughs> yeah, and I think we even talk about this a bit in there, but we can rehash here since everyone's on this this lovely episode. They, they've all listened to that one already. <laughs> oh, that's so right. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Um, yeah, so there's actually no specific guidance about recognition and measurement of contingent consideration in an asset acquisition, go figure. Um, <laughs> instead, um, contingent consideration in asset acquisition, really, you kind of have to look to other applicable gap, you know, like we've alluded to in other situations here. And so most often in this case, it's looking at the contingency guidance in ASC 450. So again, you would recognize contingent consideration obligations if it was probable and obviously reasonably estimable. Um, for asset acquisitions, though, like, you know, when you do determine that you need to record something, um, the way it works is you're going to recognize that contingent consideration as part of the initial cost of the assets acquired um, since it's not a business combination. And so any subsequent changes in, you know, the contingent consideration. So again, you're reassessing, is it still probable? Has our estimate changed each reporting period? Um, any changes to that is really just an adjustment to the cost basis of those assets. Um, you know, and that's usually done on a relative fair value basis. So, you know, you take the dollar change you had from the contingent arrangement and you kind of have to allocate that off across the um, acquired assets. Um, on a relative fair value basis. And then obviously when you're changing the cost basis, you know, you got to think about what's the impact of the income statement. And obviously with, you know, long lived assets that you potentially recorded in an asset acquisition, you got to think about depreciation or amortization. And so generally what happens is there's kind of a cumulative catch-up entry that's recorded. And that's basically assuming as if the change in the contingent value was the change, you know, as of the asset acquisition date. And so what do you have to do to kind of true up that, that income statement impact? Okay. It sounds like we're grabbing from a lot of different places. <laughs> this is wide scope, which means we're probably not going to cover it all. So we'll land the plane here by jumping to presentation and disclosure. Sure. Uh, any unique considerations to be aware of there? Yeah, we've talked about classification, I know, a bit. So you kind of know, once you've gone through that guidance, where to shove this thing on the balance sheet. Um, <laughs> but one area that we, we haven't touched on is really around maybe how you present the payments that you make under these arrangements within the cash flows. Mm. Um, so there can be a little bit more analysis that you need to do here. Um, so ASC 230, which is the cash flow guidance, um, really kind of provides um, some direction for how you need to think about contingent payments. Um, and it really has to do with kind of the timing of when those payments are made. So specifically, the guidance will refer to that if the payout occurs soon after the acquisition date, um, then that payment really should be classified as an investing cash flow, kind of similar to what you would have recorded related to the business combination or the asset acquisition itself. So on the other hand, if, you know, the payout does not occur soon after the acquisition date, then the classification really is going to depend on whether or not you paid more or less than kind of that acquisition date fair value. Um, so if you paid an amount that was basically equal to or less than that acquisition date fair value, then that payment's going to be classified as a financing activity on the, on the cash flow statement. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you end up making a payment that's much greater than the acquisition date fair value, um, then the cash flow guidance is going to tell you that any excess over that acquisition date fair value is going to be reflected as an operating cash flow. 
and then the remaining amount would go as an uh, excuse me a financing cash flow. Okay. Well, I latched onto a phrase you said in there because it was very unspecific, which is very <laughs> unlike you, Adam. So what does soon after the acquisition date mean? Yeah, so another area where the FASB did not define um, sure, what, William Fasby. <laughs> what it means, um, but they did have some language in their basis um, for conclusions when they um, put out the ASU that helped clarify some presentation of cash flow items, and one of them was contingent payments. Um, and in there, they they alluded to three months. So usually that three months or less barometer is used for whether or not it's considered soon after the acquisition date. All right. So getting us back to final disclosures and reporting, what is actually required from a disclosure perspective? Yeah. So AC805 has got a long list of disclosures just in general around business combinations that, that need to be included. And one of them is really around, you have to disclose your total consideration. So the kind of the total purchase price of the transaction itself. Um, and so if contingent consideration is a component of that total consideration, obviously you'll need to include that as a separate value in providing that kind of reconciliation. Um, but in addition to that, there are a few other things that you need to include around the contingent arrangement. And it's really just giving transparency for what is the arrangement and how is it going to be, you know, what are the triggers to pay out and how is it going to be settled? So really just like, what's the basis, you know, what is the payout based on, um, if there are possible ranges of outcomes. So maybe the provision could pay different amounts based on different triggers being met. You know, you're, you're providing some clarity there about the different payment amounts. Um, or if there's an estimate that could be in a range, you know, disclosing that range. And to the extent maybe it can't be estimated or it's unknown, you, you know, you do specifically have to state that um, a range cannot be determined and kind of explain the reason for why a range couldn't be determined. Um, and then obviously each reporting period after the acquisition, um, you know, until the arrangement itself is either settled or expires or whatever the case may be, then you need to talk about and disclose, you know, changes in recognized amounts. So if it's a liability classified arrangement, you're obviously revaluing it. So talking about changes there and also changes in ranges of outcomes, if there are, you know, ranges associated with it. And then in addition to it, um, there are a lot of just fair value disclosures that are under ASC 820 that need to be included. So just thinking about the requirements there, you know, particularly where there might be like level three inputs used and having to disclose some of the, the information around that. All right, well, I think that gets us from definition to disclosure. Obviously this is a huge topic. I mean, we covered ASC 805, 480, 815, 820, just to name a few. So thank you, Adam and Nicole. I think like this is going to be a really helpful episode because one of the hardest things is you get into some guidance and then it just sends you on the little bunny trail. So yep. I think our listeners will really benefit from kind of having this guidance for them. Obviously, this is just a small section of business combinations. Uh, we have two other episodes yep. on business combinations. Definitely. And I'm sure we'll have more in the future because this is a very complex topic. So um, speaking of future episodes, if you have any recommendations, you can find us on LinkedIn or you can check the show notes for other places you can find Embark on social media. And thank you for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. 
Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant, subsequent, authoritative guidance issued.